Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, and this morning we are thinking together, verses 17 through 45. Acts 7, verse 17 through 45. If you are joining us for the first time, we have been immersing ourselves in a study through the book of Acts, which essentially shows us how the resurrected Jesus continues his saving work in all the worlds. Moreover, the book of Acts reveals that this work of Jesus is not confined primarily to one ethnic group, but it will soon become a multi-ethnic movement. In fact, Stephen's martyrdom is the very spark that will ignite Christianity as a worldwide Movement. Now, this morning we find ourselves in the middle of Acts chapter 7, which is the record of a speech. The man giving this speech is Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, a man the Bible describes as being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The occasion that prompted the speech was hostility coming from Stephen's fellow Greek speaking Jews. Due to his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his fellow Jews brought him before the highest court in Jerusalem at that time, known as the Sanhedrin. And the charge was blasphemy. The specifics are spelled out for us in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, where we read the accusations against him. This man, they said, according to uh, the record, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Then in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest who was presiding over the council asked Stephen, are these things so? Are these charges true? The rest of chapter 7 is Stephen presenting his defense before the council. And he does so by going right into the history that is being used against him. Having addressed Abraham in verses 1 through 16, he now moves to the next part of the story and the next big name in Old Testament history, which is, you have it in the title, Moses. What a name. What a name that was in the Jewish Mind. Few other names held greater importance or evoked greater respect than Moses. And so it is to Moses that we now must turn our attention. Last week we saw Abraham and his calling. God appeared to Abraham and set him apart so that he, along with his offspring, his descendants, could show the world what it looks like to be in a right relationship with God, with the true God, and what it means to walk by faith in God's promises. Abraham and his big, big family were meant to reflect God's character to the nations. And so God promised Abraham to give him a very strategically located land in Canaan. But before reaching Canaan, 
And through divine providence, Abraham's family ended up in Egypt. This providence included a severe worldwide famine. Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, the one who was first rejected and sold into slavery by his brothers, was subsequently exalted in Egypt because God was with him. God was with Joseph. Through Joseph's wise stewardship and authority, Abraham's family were preserved from starvation and ended up in Egypt under the care of Joseph. So we pick up the story in verse 17 and 19. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. So the new Pharaoh became jealous and he became anxious of Abraham's descendants. So he decided to exterminate them at the root by killing their babies. And this is the context into which Moses was born. He was born under a decree that he should die. He was born under the decree that he should die. And so Stephen introduces us to the first stage in Moses' life. If you're following along in the notes, here is the first stage from birth to age 40, the first 40 years of Moses' life. And this is God's providential care over Moses. God's providential care over Moses. Let's begin with proper definitions. What does the word providence mean? According to the Heidelberg Catechism, we find this definition of providence. The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches or poverty, yes, and all things come not by chance, not by chance, but by his fatherly hands, by his fatherly hands. Now, the story does not mention the providence of God, but it is there all over the place. From a human perspective, if you think about it, neither the time nor the circumstances under which Moses was born were ideal. After all, who would want to be born at a time when the most powerful man in the world wants to kill you? Thankfully, all of it was directed precisely by God's providence. And it is right there in verse 17. In case you missed it, let us read it again. But as the time of the promise drew near. Two questions. First, what promise? Well, the promise God made to Abraham. The promise of land. Second question. Whose timetable are we talking about here? Who decided that the time of the promise was drawing near? Whose timetable is this? Well, obviously, there's only one logical answer. God decided. It was his timetable. Thus, we conclude 
that this was not plan B or some kind of desperate attempt on the part of God to bring about a remedy to new and adverse circumstances. Not at all. Even the timing of these events was in God's providential hands. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you of something that we often forget. God always operates as God. There is no alternative. God always operates as God, meaning providentially. Everything about the world and history, everything God does, He does so because He is God. He is God. Let me ask you, what's the alternative? What is the alternative? The alternative is terrifying because if God is not governing all things, doing as He pleases in heaven and on earth, then who is? Then who is? You answer that question for me, my Armenian friend. If you're sitting around here, who is? Who is in charge? Is terrifying Satan? Is he doing whatever he pleases? Sinners? Now, I know the objection. Clearly, people are doing whatever they please, aren't they? Yes, but never, never at the expense of God's providence. Never at the expense of his rule. He is in the heavens. Whatever he pleases, he does. Thus, in accordance with God's providence... Moses was born at this time and under these circumstances. But I want you to take notice of verse 20. Moses was beautiful in God's sight. The statement is like seeing a red flower in a dry desert or finding a fortress in the middle of a raging storm. It is a note of peace. While Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, was raging with murderous fury, Verse 20 reminds us that God was not anxious. He was not worried. He loved Moses. But let me ask you this. Why was Moses beautiful in God's sight? What had Moses done? Be born? There's not a whole lot of merit in being born. He had no merit. Why was he beautiful in God's sight? He was beautiful because Moses was God's chosen instrument to bring about salvation to his people. God sovereignly and providentially guided every move of his life. It was God's providence that led Moses, baby Moses, right to Pharaoh's daughter. And it was God's providence that led her to pity Moses and raise him in safety and comfort in Egypt. Nothing was random. Nothing was by chance. It was all divine providence. And the same can be said about us. We're the product of providence. Consider now the second stage in Moses' life, ages 40 to 80. God's intimate call to Moses. God's intimate call to Moses. You, you will understand that we're dealing with 28 verses, so we're going to move quite fast. The second major stage in Moses' life began when he was 40, and it was launched by a very tragic moment. Seeing one of the Hebrews being mistreated by an Egyptian, Moses took matters into his own hands, the Bible says, and he killed the guy. But the response from the Hebrews is not what you might have expected. Instead of seeing Moses as a protector and a defender, the Hebrews used this against him. 
Likely, if you think about it, the Hebrews had animosity toward him since he was an Egyptian, at least by adoption. And so the next day, the Bible says that Moses sees two of his brothers, two Hebrews, arguing, and he comes and he tries to establish peace, to which they responded with a very important question. Consider verse 27, how they responded to Moses' desire to establish peace. What did they say in verse 27? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Now, you need to hang on to that question. It's going to become very important. For now, consider what Moses did. The Bible says he fled to Midian, which is a desert. He lived there as an exile for the next how many years? 40 years of his life. So in verse 30, we encounter a Moses who is now 80 years old. And he is about to experience one of the most defining moments of his life it is at this very stage that God appeared to him in the very well-known story of the burning yet not consumed bush. I just want to highlight a few facts. First, notice how God introduces himself to Moses in verse 32. How does he introduce himself? I am, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that significant? It is significant because God is a God of covenant faithfulness, meaning what he is about to do through Moses in Egypt is because he was faithful to whom? To Abraham. To Abraham. And notice also this little detail. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he said, I am the God of Abraham. Why the present tense? Hadn't Abraham had been dead for several hundred years by then? Yes, but God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Abraham's body had died, but his soul will be forever with God. And someday, Abraham's body will be raised as well. Therefore, God is the God of Abraham because he is the God of the living. Second, notice how Moses is commanded to do something very specific, to take off his what? His sandals. His sandals. We will return to the word sandals in a little bit. So don't forget that word. It matters. And third... Notice God's covenantal love in verse 34. I have surely seen the affliction of whose people? My people, says God. My people. Who was he talking about? Egypt? No, he was talking about the descendants of Abraham exclusively. Those whom God chooses, he never, never forgets. And because this is the case, we then see Moses' third and final stage. And now we find him between the ages 80 to 120. He lived a long life. And this is God's supernatural empowering of Moses, which goes from verses 35 through 38. I want you to notice something in your Bibles. Verse 35, 36, 37, and 38, they all begin in a very similar way. It says, this man 
or this Moses. Each verse is then emphasizing different aspects of his ministry. First, this man was made ruler and redeemer, according to verse 35. Remember back in verse 27 how the Hebrews challenged Moses' authority? And the question they asked him was, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Verse 35 answers that question, who made him ruler and a judge? God made Moses ruler and redeemer of the Hebrews. I wonder if Moses ever found those two guys again and had a little talk with them. Thus, Moses ministered in Egypt with God's own authority because God chose him. God made him ruler and redeemer. Very interesting. Next, verse 36, this man, Moses, was attested by God. Attested by God. This verse is obviously a reference to the Exodus. And what happened, what happened then? God performed signs and wonders through his servant Moses. Everyone knew God was with Moses because God empowered Moses with supernatural gifts, which continued throughout the rest of his life, both at the Red Sea and in the wilderness. His role and authority were confirmed or attested by signs and wonders. Very interesting. Notice next, verse 37, this man, Moses, was a prophet, was a prophet. Moses was a prophet who prophesied about another prophet that would come later in their history. He was given insight into the future. Moses gave that prophecy originally in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. What's important at this point is what Stephen implied in his speech. The implication was this. Moses was not the final word from God. Moses was not the final word from God. A greater prophet was coming, and he did come, and you missed him. Not only did you miss him, but you actually killed him. That is the charge. And finally, verse 38, this man, Moses, was a lawgiver. A lawgiver, verse 38, he received living oracles to give to us. What is the point of all of this? The point of it all was to say that God was with Moses. He was God's chosen instrument, providentially kept from harm, providentially led into the wilderness, providentially equipped and empowered for ministry. The one the Hebrews rejected became their redeemer. Interesting. Consider with me uh, the, the sad pattern of Israel in verses 39 through 43, Israel's rebellious pattern, Israel's rebellious pattern. These verses tell the very sad story of the people of Israel, having been given a very privileged place in all of human history as the recipients of divine revelation and favor, and having been given a leader like Moses, they often chose the path of wickedness and unrighteousness. But I want you to notice in particular how Stephen described their sin. They rejected Moses and his authority, which means they rejected God himself. Don't miss that. But there are a few lessons for us here. The first lesson is this. Sin is always a matter of the heart. Consider verse 39. In their hearts, they returned to Egypt. My friend, my brothers and sisters in Christ, please know for certain that external religiosity never saved anyone. 
external religion never saved anyone. Christianity is a matter of the heart because sin is a matter of the heart. Sin is not somewhere out there. Sin is a plague within. The second lesson we learn is this. Sin is to return to idolatry. Sin is to return to idolatry. In their hearts, they returned to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was full of idolatry. Egypt did not know the true God. Therefore, the Israelites, God's chosen people, wanted to be like Egypt. They wanted to be idolaters. This explains why they asked Aaron to build them a golden calf. All of this leads us to the true evil and the true nature of sin. Sin is to make God in your own image. Sin is to make God in your own image. Verse 41 says that after making their idol, they were rejoicing in the work of whose hands? The work of their own hands. Finally, they said, a God who looks like I want it to look a God who conforms to my desires, a God who makes no demands of me, a silent God who does not speak, command, or punish. Their idolatry continued throughout their entire history, as we know. They rejected Moses while he was alive, and they rejected him even when he was dead by ignoring his commandments. Much later in their history, God sent him to exile to give them what they wanted, idols. So they were conquered and taken captive by Babylon. Sad story indeed. Thankfully, though, the story is not about an unfaithful people, but about a faithful God, which takes us to the next point, God's covenantal presence with Israel, which we see in verses 44 and 45. It talks about the tabernacle, the tent of witness, Verse 44, including the Ark of the Covenant, which was a type of throne symbolizing God's presence with his people, was built under Moses' leadership. The purpose of this tabernacle, the purpose of it is recorded for us in Exodus 25, verse 8. God said to Moses in Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, that I may dwell in their midst. As I said last week, God is committed to his covenant people, and with them he wants to dwell. The very climax of human history, the end to which everything is moving, is precisely that, God making his eternal dwelling place with us, with man, as Revelation 21.3 says. Through various covenants in the Old Testament, God is showing us that he will remove the one thing that separates him from his people, namely sin and death. Through types and shadows, the Old Testament is teaching the Jews what it takes for communion between God and man to be restored. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the garden. When sin corrupted everything, God flooded the world and killed everything except Noah and his family. It didn't take long for the world to become corrupted again, showing us that sin has come to stay. But in his grace, God did not destroy the world. This time he called Abraham and set him apart. 
through him and his descendants, God would show the world what it means to be in a right relationship with him and to reflect his character. Through Joshua, God preserved the Abrahamic family from extinction, and through him also they ended up in Egypt and they became slaves. Through Moses, God redeemed the Abrahamic family, brought them out of the kingdom of idolatrous Egypt, and revealed to them what proper worship looks like. God, through Moses, provided freedom so that his chosen people could come and worship him exclusively. And as the Old Testament progressed, we begin to see the importance of blood through the concept of substitution, whereby an innocent lamb would die in the place of a guilty person. And we also begin to see the crucial importance of holiness in worship. And throughout their history, sin was the one plague they could not get rid of. They could not get rid of. You see, here's the bottom line. All of this history, with all its amazing victories through Moses, and with its mind-boggling, hard-to-believe disasters due to sin, all this history is there to show us that a greater deliverance was needed. And so, as Stephen stood there on trial before the Sanhedrin and spoke these words, he had one all-consuming thought. What was that thought? Christ, the true deliverer. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. You see, we can read the story of Moses. And we can celebrate God's grace and goodness to his people in the Old Testament. But we need to ask ourselves a question. So what? So what? This is in page 891 in the Blue Bibles, if that's what you're using. John chapter 5. And I want us to read together verses 39 and 40 and 45 and 46. We have been considering the story of Moses in very summary form. But consider what Jesus told his own people, the Jewish people. In John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures. What were their scriptures? The Old Testament. What we just read. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify about about me. This is Jesus speaking. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now read with me verses 45 and 46. This is incredible what he's about to tell them. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Who accuses them? Moses. Moses, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. What is the story of Moses about? Please don't tell me I don't know. We just read it. Here's Jesus saying, Moses wrote of me. So, let me say this. If we go home without seeing Jesus, we miss the entire point of what Stephen said. I don't want us to miss what the Jews missed. So as we look to Moses, we must see Jesus. So 
Let's consider Moses and Jesus, the parallels, the parallels. Consider these parallels between Moses and Jesus. He, meaning Jesus, everything we're going to see now is Jesus. He, too, was born at the proper time. He, too, was born at the proper time. Moses was born when the time of the promise drew near. Moses was born according to God's providentially determined timetable. When all things were in place, all people in their respective locations, and all circumstances ripe, Moses was born. Likewise, Paul said in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. If Moses was born providentially, so was Jesus. He came at the perfect time, not a minute earlier, not a minute later. The world was ready to receive the Messiah. And who determined that time? God himself. God himself. That's the first parallel. Next, he too was born under the threat of death. He too was born under the threat of death. Moses was born at a time when Pharaoh wanted to murder all male Hebrew babies. And Pharaoh did kill many babies, throwing them mercilessly into the Nile River. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was born? When Jesus was born, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Like Pharaoh, Herod also managed to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. That's the second parallel. Consider the next. He, Jesus, too, was precious in God's sight. We read in the story of Moses, as recounted by Stephen, that he was beautiful in God's sight. What did God say of Jesus? Of Jesus, the voice from heaven said in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The only difference, though, is that the Father said this of Jesus after Jesus had lived approximately 30 years. And for that entire time, this Jesus of Nazareth committed no sin, nor was there deceit found in his mouth, something Moses never could have said about himself. Only Jesus could say, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Next, consider with me, Jesus too was sent to minister after 40 days in the desert. Prior to the start of his ministry in Egypt, Moses was sent for 40 years into the Midian desert. Our Lord Jesus, prior to entering his public ministry, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, how many days? 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was hungry. Consider next. He too was attested by God through miracles. He too was attested by God through miracles. Stephen 
pointed out how Moses was attested by God or confirmed as God's chosen instrument of redemption through the supernatural gifts he was given. Likewise, according to Acts 2, verse 22, Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And so Jesus healed the sick, fed the hungry, and raised the dead, all of which stands as proof that he actually came from God. Consider next parallel. He too was oppressed and rejected by his brothers. Moses, the Bible says, was rejected by his own people. He was thrust aside, as Stephen said. In Jesus, the story repeats itself, for according to John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It seems like Israel had a thing for rejecting its saviors. First, they rejected Moses, and this stood as a prophetic picture of what Israel would do with the actual Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was despised and rejected, as Isaiah said he would. Consider next, he too was made ruler and redeemer of his people. He too was made ruler and redeemer of his people. It seems clear that the Hebrews did not like rulers over them. To Moses, they asked, who made you ruler and judge over us? Implicitly, this was the same question the Jews asked of Jesus throughout his entire ministry. When he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, they asked about his authority. When he preached, they asked about his authority. And even when he healed they asked about his authority. By what authority do you do this? Who do you think you are? And they finally rejected him. They hated him enough to put him on a cross until he was dead. But as Peter preached to the very same Jews who killed Jesus in Acts 2.36, he said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Once again, the one rejected became ruler and redeemer. And finally, consider with me the last parallel I want to show you. He too was sent to lead us out of the kingdom of darkness. He too was sent to lead us out of the kingdom of darkness. Moses was sent to Egypt to bring God's covenant people out of Pharaoh's kingdom and into a new land where the true God is worshipped and loved as king. Now listen to the language employed by the Apostle Paul to speak about our salvation in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. What is the point? Well, the point is that Jesus is another Moses-like figure, but better. For the kingdom from which he delivers us is the one which is invisible, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of darkness, and Satan, who is the spiritual Pharaoh. 
But Jesus, being the strong Son of Man, is our Deliverer. Through His death, sin has been atoned for, divine wrath has been satisfied, and the wages of sin has been paid in full. And now because of Jesus, we are free. Because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And through his resurrection, Jesus began a new creation. In all of this, in all of these things, he stands as the covenant head of his people, his elect, the ones from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He did it for them. Thus, even though there are parallels between Moses and Jesus, our Lord Jesus remains unparalleled which is our last point, Jesus, the unparalleled one. Jesus, the one without parallel. There's no one like him. There is something not even Moses could say. There is something that belongs uniquely, uniquely, exclusively, and only to Jesus. And it is the great end to which Stephen's sermon is headed. Jesus, of course, we know already is the prophet of whom Moses spoke. And as a true prophet, he's the one who reveals the Father to us. But he does so in a way Moses never could. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples, If you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. Jesus is, therefore, the one who stands behind and above Moses, the one to whom Moses simply pointed into the future and said, listen to him, the one who is coming, listen to him. Moses was pointing forward, always pointing forward. Obviously, Moses said that thousands of years prior to the actual coming of Jesus into the world. So at this point, I want to draw yet another parallel that also reveals the unparalleled nature of Jesus. And I will do so by calling your attention to one who also pointed to Jesus, but who was a contemporary of Jesus. Remember how I said I would come back to the word of sandals? You, remember, you forgot that, right, didn't you? Oh, yeah, he did say it. Well, here we go. When Moses, when Moses... When God called Moses through the burning bush, it is very interesting because God said to him, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Sandals, interesting word, interesting because it reminded me of John the Baptist. It reminded me of John the Baptist. Like Moses, John the Baptist came into the world to point to Jesus. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist also said something about sandals, didn't he? Remember what he said? In case you don't remember, here's what he said in Mark 1.7. After me, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. How interesting, isn't it? While Moses, the great and mighty Moses, had to take his sandals off his feet to enter that holy ground, 
John the Baptist, the most humble man, counted it too high a privilege to stoop down at the feet of Jesus to untie his sandals. A privilege he said, I am unworthy of. Why? Well, here's why. God was with Moses. God was with Moses. True. But Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. God in the flesh. So John the Baptist knew this. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals because he is God in the flesh. But more shockingly, he is the one who died so that we might live. God incarnate died so that we might live. Oh, what a hope. Jesus truly is Jesus, the unparalleled one. God incarnate died so that death could no longer sting you. Now, what is the connection to the Exodus and Moses? In a letter written to a lady who was nearing her own death and using Exodus language, Samuel Rutherford said this to her, and I quote, Be not afraid. When you come, even to the black and swelling river of death. Be not afraid to put in your foot and wade after Christ. The current, however strong, cannot carry you down the water to hell. The Son of God, His death and resurrection are stepping stones and a stay to you. Set down your feet by faith upon these stones and go through that river of death as on dry land. End quote. Through Moses, God parted the Red Sea that blocked the way to the promised land. But through Jesus, his death and resurrection, God has parted death itself. And now because of Jesus, nothing, not even death, can keep us from our promised land, an eternity with Jesus himself, where sin and death will be no more. So as Stephen contemplated the prospect of his own death at the hands of an angry mob, Christ Jesus was his only comfort. So I ask you, my friend, what is your only comfort in life? And death. For us Christians, we know the answer that we belong both body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. On the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah appeared next to Jesus, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So I finish by asking you this one simple question. Have you listened to Jesus? He said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Will you this morning 
receive his forgiveness and the eternal life that he offers to you. If yes, then repent of your sins. Believe in his name. For the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Moses and for the fact that he stands as an example, a type of the one who was to come thousands of years later, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the story of Moses is not an end in itself, but is pointing us to the greater Moses, the one who came down from heaven to be with his people and to lead them into a new exodus by delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into his own kingdom. So we look to Christ as Stephen did on that day, even as he faced the prospect of death, he looked to Christ. And so help us, Lord, to be like Stephen, to learn from his faith and to look to Christ at all times, knowing that our hope in life and death, in body and soul, is that we belong to him. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.